Earn your graduate degree at Fordham University, now offering an MA in Catholic Theology, a Master of Theological Studies, and a PhD in Theology. Fordham is a national leader in theological education, rooted in the Jesuit vision of social justice. Learn more at fordham.edu slash theologygrad. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic team. I was just thinking in my head as I was reading this how, like, why do I still, like, have to read this? And it made me... Yeah, yeah, you should have it memorized by now. (laughs) Oh, take two. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by... What's your name? Oh my <laughs> Zach Davis. Zach Davis. <laughs> it's good to be with you, Ashley. Uh, and happy holiday season to you. Yeah. It's big, big around uh, American Media's offices this week. We got our Christmas party coming up. I know you are steering the party planning committee. Oh, How's yes. that going? I am very busy. We're, we're actually, I'll be sticking around the office after this recording to set up the event space, which is always a labor of love. Uh, the night before. <laughs> and it involves several homemade snowflakes. Yes. I'm a little disappointed by our output this year. Um, I usually put out the paper. I put out the instructions. I give a tutorial. And I invite everyone on staff to take a break from their work and cut out a few paper snowflakes. Yeah. Typically, a company productivity <laughs> takes – it just plummets the week of the Christmas party because we're all making mm-hmm. snowflakes. Yes. I see. I have noted that you have procrastinated on this as as in all things. I just don't have any <laughs> spatial reasoning at all. So the like the, the folding and the cutting, mm-hmm. it just comes out looking like a giant blob and no one wants to see that. Sounds like you're acting like a snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Um, but we do have a great show, a lot of exciting stuff coming up in this episode. We sure do. We are, again, talking to Matt Marr. Matt Marr is a nine-time Grammy nominee and a three-time GMA Dove Award-winning musician. And we are talking about his latest album, The Stories I Tell Myself. You know, I just got a, like, Facebook memory from, like, 2008 or nine, where I, like, was at uh, the National Catholic Youth Conference, and I, like, got a picture close up, and I, the caption was like, yeah, that's Matt Marr. Oh, my god, that's 2009. <laughs> um, but you mentioned that we're talking to him again. Again, because uh, longtime listeners of the show will remember that uh, in 2017 we actually talked to Matt. Um, we so every five years we're on a we're on a cadence right now. So we'll see him again in 2027, I'm sure. But you're going to want to stick around for this conversation. We talk about the new album, what the effect of COVID was on sort of his artistic and creative process, um, how he's been thinking about things like racial justice and incorporating that into his music. Um, really special conversation. Yep. And we are drinking his recommended drink, which I had never heard before, <laughs> thoroughbred mule, which is kind of like a Moscow mule, but of course with bur- bourbon. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ashley's sitting right next to an entire <laughs> bouquet of mint. It's an absolute <laughs> massive amount of mint, which we don't- It's the only size they sold. <laughs> so I think you should hang that up around the office like mistletoe, yeah. <laughs> and I don't think anyone would know the difference. Totally. All right. All right. Cheers. Cheers. 
Coming up on the show in Signs of the Times, we talk about the case of a Jesuit artist who has been restricted from ministry in the face of allegations of sexual abuse and the further opening up of churches from COVID restrictions um, and how we should think about that. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. You know, we all deserve to continue learning and have access to trustworthy information. And that's why Wondrium is our favorite educational platform. With audio and video courses, documentaries, tutorials, and more, the list of things we can learn on Wondrium is endless. And I have been digging into this great, great course called The Apocalypse, Controversies and Meaning in Western History. When you, you know, you talk about trustworthy information, I feel like the Book of Revelations is something that a bunch of crazy people have a lot of takes on. Well, luckily, that is not the case. It is taught by a preeminent scholar on the Book of Revelations, and it, it, it's just fascinating. Like, all the symbols, like how to sift through what is sensationalized, what's real, what does John mean when he's writing about these things. Um, it's something I had put off learning about because there's so many crazy people attached to it, um, and I've been really, really enjoying this course. Wondrium has thousands of hours of trusted information that you won't get anywhere else, all from the brightest minds in their fields. Plus, the Wondrium app makes it so easy. Pick a program, watch or listen on any device, anytime, anywhere. You can learn on the go while you're driving, at the gym, or cooking dinner. Yeah, if you're a podcast listener, this is a, a, a definite feature you're going to want to use. And we that's why we know that you'll love Wondrium as much as we do. And right now, our listeners can get this limited time offer. You can get two years of Wondrium for the price of one year. That's a fantastic deal. Yeah, so sign up today through our special URL to get this great offer. Go to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. Dot com slash Jesuitical. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And our first story involves a pretty famous Jesuit artist named Father Marco Rupnik. He has been barred from hearing confessions or giving spiritual direction after complaints that he had spiritually and sexually abused adult members of a religious order of women in Slovenia. Um, and it is alleged that this abuse occurred during confessions. I have to admit, I had not heard the name uh, Father Rupnik before, but when this news broke, our, our Jesuit colleagues were like, this guy is a huge deal. His art is everywhere. It's at the Vatican. It's in Manresa. It's at Lourdes. It's in chapels around the country. Around um, the world. Around the world. Um, and, he, and he has worked closely w with the Vatican to create logos for things like um, the World Meeting of Families. So this guy's work is pretty ubiquitous. And, and this case is, um, I would say, lacking in transparency. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, we have a statement from the Jesuits, which didn't provide a lot of details about the allegations beyond saying that they were regarding his way of exercising his ministry and that, quote, no minors were involved. Um, these allegations were investigated by the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is typical for cases of sexual abuse. And the case was closed at the beginning of October because uh, the 20-year statute of limitations had passed on the, on the case. Yeah, which is not typical for cases of abuse because often the dicastery um, will waive the statute of limitations when they're investigating these sorts of cases because we know this. Abuse that was happening in the 50s, 60s, 70s, we're just learning about it now. So they closed the case and it's it's also, we should also point out that Pope Francis, also a Jesuit, uh, met with Father Rupnik in January, um, but it's unclear how involved he was in the decision to close the case. Yeah, and I just I, struck me while we were talking about this that like a 20-year statute of limitations is particularly like 
appalling in 2022. Like, mm-hmm. 2002 is when the Boston Globe first, like, sexual abuse crisis kind of came to the fore of the church. So, we, you know, I, I feel like, especially in cases after t- 2002, that, that is ridiculous to have that limitation involved. Yes. Uh, and I think we're we're not alone in our um, uh, concern about how this is being treated. Uh, Father Hans Zollner, uh, he's He's a Jesuit, and he's the top abuse expert at the Vatican. Um, he's called for greater transparency in this case. He says um, questions have been raised about about this uh, investigation that only the dicastery for the doctrine of faith can answer, and so far they they haven't been um, forthcoming. Uh, and another Italian Jesuit was a little bit more pointed, saying that this is a quote paradigmatic case of justice denied. Yeah, and it's I I don't really know how typical it is. It, the way that the ministry has been restricted is is striking to me. It's very odd. On the one hand, we're still dealing with, you know, trying to call for more transparency um, from all levels of the church to kind of be uh, upfront about what's going on in cases like this, particularly very public cases like this. But it also raises a different question that we, we were talking about. It echoes cases like People like Jean Vanier, uh, David Haas, um, you know, spiritual and artistic people within the church. And it comes at a time when, you know, the world was dealing with Kanye West and his anti-Semitism and, and craziness um, and how you, how you separate sort of the art from the artist, right? Like, I think it's one thing in, in David Haas's case, who's, you know, composed a bunch of classic, like, church hymns. You can sort of just stop playing those and no one, you know, people might say, oh, I wish we heard the song more, but otherwise it's not going to raise a big thing. You can sort of quiet quit um, a musician. Father Rupnik, his his art is large. It's, yeah, it's mosaics that are embedded into buildings. Like you can't just paper over it. No. And so this this question about how to separate the art from the artist is about to get a lot less theoretical, I think, for, for people in the church. And I, I would not be surprised if we see calls to remove some of this. Yeah, I know. I'm struggling with it, too, because I feel like in cases that do not involve the church, I'm generally a person that feels like we should be able to separate artists from from their art when they when they have done terrible things. Um, A lot of artists were really bad people. (laughs) But the idea of someone who abused religious sisters, his his work literally being like in a church and what that could do to the spirituality of people who go there? Like, are they going to keep going there? Would they feel safe going there? Um, I think it's really hard. And they're being like the Vatican. Yeah. Right. Like it's not just where people go for healing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really messy case. Um, I, but fundamentally we, we need more transparency at the Vatican. If we're, if we're going to answer any of those sort of secondary questions, we need to know what the heck's going on. Yep. All right. What's our next story, Zach? This week, America republished an article from Catholic News Service titled U.S. Dioceses Begin to Bring Back Communion Cup, which is detailing how a few dioceses around the country are beginning to bring back communion under both the species of bread and wine, which has been suspended for the pandemic. Right. And then also this week in Italy, the Italian Bishops Conference uh, uh, reinstituted the sign of peace so people can, again, shake hands at the sign of peace instead of this awkward dance we have going on right now where you try to decide, like, do I hug, do I peace, do I wave, do I head nod? The rotate, you know what I'm talking about, (laughs) where you just kind of pivot around and show the peace sign to everybody. Um, There's this, it reminded me of this amazing clip from uh, earlier time in the pandemic where it's a mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral and 
um, Cardinal Dolan is presiding and the deacon does the thing where he says, oh, let us show another a sign of peace. And it's still pretty early in the pandemic. And I think that was probably mostly out of habit. Mm-hmm. And Cardinal Dolan just goes, let's not. And it's very funny. <laughs> You know, it, there there's some questions that are open for discussion about this. Like, is now the right time to bring back uh, communion under the species of wine? Uh, do we need to do we need to receive um, both bread and wine? Does it all come down to how comfortable we are with germs at the end of the day? Um, and before we start to answer some of those questions, which get into a lot of opinion analysis, let's let's lay some groundwork. Let's say some facts, cite some studies. Uh, So we can set the stage. Right. So first, Catholics did not always receive communion under the species of wine. Um, We have evidence in the early church. And uh, at the Last Supper, we should say. Right. (laughs) Um, But it fell away at some point and was only restored at the Second Vatican Council. So, yeah, this is, you know, 1960s. We're bringing this back. It's the only thing we've known. But But for most of the church's history, this didn't happen. Um, Secondly... I think most people will find this intuitive. You can certainly spread germs uh, through communion, um, but it doesn't mean that it's more likely to get you sick than other activities. Um, There's not a lot of people who've done controlled scientific studies on this. Uh, I found one from 1997 where... um, it concluded, this is peer reviewed, concluded the following that 681 people in New Jersey were surveyed over a 10 week period and found no differences in the illness rates among those who A, attended church and received communion, B, those who attended church and did not receive communion, and C, those who never even attended church. And, and these rates also held true for even for people that receive communion every single day. All right. Well, I love this study because it confirms my priors. <laughs> yeah, sure. We're, we're, your priors being like, oh, Jesus wouldn't be sick, <laughs> no, right? <laughs> no, my, my priors that germs are good. No, oh, God. <laughs> that you can, eating dirt is fine. <laughs> Laying that out, I think it's not it's not 1997, right? It, you know, we, we are still sort of in the throes of dying embers, depending on who you ask, of a pandemic. Um, so what, what do we think about this? Is now the right time? Um, what are some things we should think about when it comes to whether or not we should receive? Yeah, I guess I would start with, uh, you know, what's what's lost when we when we don't have the wine, when we aren't making some sort of physical sign of peace and, you know, really be honest about what we're losing and then weighing that against the risks of instituting them. And I think I don't know, for me personally, I I miss I miss having the wine. I know it's not, not a, just because you're thirsty, not just <laughs> well, and like. I mean, there's presumably a reason that Jesus, yeah. you know, didn't stop after he said, this is my body, right? Yeah. You know, there was like a, this is my blood. Um, and so there's lots of like, I feel like there are lots of theological reasons why, you know, it's important. And also, you know, the church says that you're not getting like half of Jesus if you only have the bread, right? You know, like communion in either species contains the full body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and Savior. So it's one of these like Catholic contradictions that's not really a contradiction thing i don't know i sort of feel like even if it's important to say that even if it's brought back you don't have to get it right like you are not obliged to receive communion under the species of wine if it's offered right no one's going to look at you funny i mean this used to happen all the time like if someone had sniffles you would just i would hope that people would just (laughs) skip that part and so I think dioceses and parishes and parishioners can, you know, be discerning and smart about like, okay, maybe under, maybe it's flu season. Maybe we just like take the cup away for, for four weeks while we let like a particular wave pass, right? Like we, that, that we have evidence of that happening in the last 20 years. But what I would hate for this is to become another like topic in the liturgy wars. Um, oh, no. Yeah. Because look, we have enough things to argue about. I don't think we need to like try to 
no, really. Yeah, like I, I can already see it happening where there's a segment of the church that's like, oh, if you want to bring back the cup, you're ableist. And the, then the people who are willing to go to the cup being like, oh, you're all cowards. Like, yeah. and, and like neither of those is, is necessary. And the Latin mass devotees being like, we didn't do this before Vatican II. <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't do it anymore, right? So there's like unlikely bedfellows in some ways. Um, so that'd be my like admonition to the listening audience is the real test of faith is Try not to judge the person doing the thing that you're not doing, um, particularly when you are in, in communion with uh, the, the triune God. Maybe try to exist some, some love, mercy, and compassion. All right. Wise words. And now stick around for our conversation with Matt Marr. The good old days are gone. In the past where they belong Turns out they Joining us from Memphis, Tennessee, where he is on tour, is Matt Marr. Matt is a nine-time Grammy nominee and a three-time GMA Dove Award-winning musician, and his latest album is The Stories I Tell Myself. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Matt. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's been it's been five years. Uh, we've gone through through a pandemic since we last talked. You, <laughs> you, your hair and beard are both a little longer, but I'm sure we're going to get into <laughs> what else has changed since then. But uh, congrats yeah. on the album; just came out last month, right? Yes, yeah. It, uh, it we're slowly releasing music over the course of the year, but the whole rest of the project, well, at least the, this part of the project, dropped. Yeah, about a month ago. All right. Well, I can tell you one thing that has happened in the past five years is you've gotten two new fans, which is my parents, who uh, (laughs) we went to the uh, premiere of season three of The Chosen in theaters last week before Thanksgiving. And of course, before the movie is your brand new music video for the song, uh, The In-Between. So I want to start just talking about what the experience of working on Chosen has been like you got to go out to their set in Capernaum, I believe. So, what has that been like? Yeah, not not Ca- Capernaum, <laughs> oh, uh, Israel, uh, <laughs> Capernaum, Texas. Uh, <laughs> so similar. Um, actually, they're both remote, so they kind of are uh, in that in that in that sense. In January of 2021, I had written a song with a guy named Judah Acres, who's lead singer of a band called Judah and the Lion. And Judah was in the finishing stages, I think, or, or had just, yeah, I think he was in the finishing stages of a self-titled independent project that kind of explored more of his faith. And we were talking about writing a song, and he's like, hey, there's a show called The Chosen. I'd love to write a song based on this line that Mary Magdalene says. He's like, have you seen the show? And I was like, yeah, I hadn't watched a full episode. <laughs> <laughs> I had, everyone was talking about it. I was part of the Christmas special. I, I was on board because everyone involved just seemed to be fantastic human beings. This is how I feel right now. Ash, Ashley loves the show. I begrudgingly admit I have also not seen a full episode yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, this is what happens. I'm realizing like at some point that they need, they need to do an ad campaign about this, that there's like everyone knows someone who's watched the show and has cried multiple times. Yep. Or had some like amazing experience, and the and you're like, that's cool, you know, nice, happy for you. And then eventually, for whatever reason, you break down and watch it. So we wrote the song, the in between. I got the scene. I found the scene on YouTube, and eventually, when I watched the whole episode, I cried like a baby. And then 
ended up doing the second Christmas special as well and went out to their set. And when we got out to the set, they were like on the call sheet at the very end of the call sheet. They're like, okay, we're filming a music video for Hark the Herald Angel Sing. And then they're like, yeah, we're supposed to shoot a video for some song called The In-Between. So we didn't shoot it that day. We waited um, uh, and shot it over the summer this year. And it was amazing. And sort of since then, um, in the past year and a half, I've gotten to know more of the cast and more of the team. Dane Hazeltine and Matt Nelson do the music. You know, I have talked with them a bunch. I mean, I already knew Dan from Jars of Clay. And um, there's, it's a really neat community, I think, of creative people who are very committed to sort of the long form narrative aspect of of fleshing out the humanity that's in the gospels that that oftentimes gets overlooked. For those who are still holding out and haven't seen <laughs> seen the chosen, I just want to say what the scene is. It's Mary Magdalene and um it's after she has met Jesus and it's completely changed her life and and the line she says was, quote, I was one way and now I am completely different and the thing that happened in between was him referring to Jesus. Yes. So and this was and she's having a conversation. Yes. She's having a conversation with Nicodemus and he goes to investigate because he knew her as this sort of like messed up alcoholic woman of ill repute who's everyone's like, stay away from her. You know, um, she's damaged goods or, or whatever. And then all of a sudden he sees her in a market one day and she's completely transformed and he's just sort of beside himself and that she didn't go to any of the religious leaders at the time you know, for healing, they, they, you know, so he has to figure it out. And the, to me, I think the thing about the show that has blown me away that are, that it's sort of a realization that, you know, I'm a big Tolkien fan. So going back to the cinemas every couple of years to watch an adaptation of the Lord of the Rings and then watching how the characters, the actors who played the characters bonded in a way that they were completely unprepared for. And realizing that the same thing is happening, but it's actually with a story that's central to my faith, and it's a real story. Mm -hmm. These are all real people and real characters. And so we're seeing their humanity unfold. And I think in a way you're seeing the humanity of the actors themselves unfold as they get connected more and more to each other, which creates for, I think, a more compelling story to watch. So, And we've in two, 2,000 years, we've never had that as the church, visually. No, and you speaking of stories, um done a great yeah. job plugging the chosen, but also want to get to to your new <laughs> yeah, album. My album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is the stories that I tell myself. The title track, maybe we'll start there. Um yeah. it's pretty you said that it's pretty autobiographical and sort of came from a, a place in the pandemic. Could you maybe just, you know, bring us back there to, you know, you're you're coming up with the song, you're writing it. What what's going through your head? Yeah. But he drank his way through your teenage years. Now you're stuck with the bill for your father's sin. These are the stories I tell myself. This town has a ceiling that you'll never break through. You'll always be alone in a crowd. I mean, I think like everyone, there's there was stuff in the basement, emotionally, spiritually, mentally that came to the surface you know i feel like in some ways there was a great unveiling that that happened for people for me there was a lot of anxiety and fear around the future not touring um being personally really impacted by the polarization 
within society, within the church of people being more and more just divided. In in myself, I think the big thing was the realization of, I thought I was mature enough as a Christian that there were certain things I didn't struggle with, like the approval of men or <laughs> success or... I, I thought I'd reached a level of maturity as a person where those things didn't matter. Like everyone, I sort of found myself home with my family, which that part was amazing. But creatively, the internet just became mostly a place of generalized anxiety for me mm. and comparison. And yeah. it, and and I think that's what it has become for a lot of creative people. And that's like a whole other conversation. But for me, it was sort of like, okay, I'm making a record. I've got to figure out how to muster up the courage to do this. And for me, it was this realization that my creativity was working against me. So my capacity to tell imaginative stories about what grace could do or what love can do and what faith can do was now inverted against me. And it was basically creating terrible stories about what people thought of me or didn't think of me even worse for uh, somebody who stands up in front of people. You have to be a bit of a narcissist to do what I do to understand <laughs> this. It's interesting because like uh, the stories that you tell yourself, it, it th that phrase in itself m makes it seem like they're, you know, they're lies, they're, they're falsehoods, the false self that Thomas Burton talks about. Right. But also yes. like stories are what, what keep us all going too. Right. Uh, not just about ourselves, but about um, those that have come before us. And that's, where you seem to land in, in, in the song itself is that those are the stories that kind of give you strength. Um, yeah. But I'm wondering if, you know, Pope Francis has talked about like storytelling and even stories about ourselves, the ones that we tell ourselves to be like important for our own discernment, um, good Jesuit that he is. So how did you know, getting through this pandemic and not that we're necessarily all the way through, but you're out, you're out on tour again and cr hopefully creatively things are flowing better. Yeah. Um, no, I'm I'm through I'm through that cave. I'm I'm through that valley, whatever that valley was. I'm through that one. I don't know. If I, <laughs> I couldn't tell you about tomorrow, but I'm through that one. What what happened? At what what it, for me was that I saw my oldest son. My oldest son started um, to basically tell um, my wife and I that he was feeling anxious. He would he was worrying a lot about things, and my dad struggled with crippling anxiety, and it sort of runs in my family. And I'd spent most of my life pretty anxious free. And then during COVID, all of a sudden I started going, oh, wow, why am I so anxious about so many things? For me, I wrote Your Grace is Enough 20 years ago, this year or next year. It's a bit hazy. I wrote it in the middle of treatment for hepatitis C that I had for almost 30 years. But what inspired that song was going to a Bible study and hearing someone talk about the story of God relating to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how in, in the way in the narrative of the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, in each person, the way that God relates to someone, we see an aspect of who he is and really how he's willing to relate to us specifically. So the song became, I guess, specificity was the realization that I had the title before I had the lyrics. I had the title, These Are the Stories I Tell Myself, and I knew exactly what it was. I sat down one day. One of my co-producers was a guy named Brian Elmquist, who is in a band called The Lone Bellow, and Brian's a dear friend. And I was like, I have this idea for a song, and I just started singing lyrics, and I was crying in front of my friend because I knew 
it's it's sometimes as a songwriter like you're singing you're writing to yourself you're singing things that you need to hear so the title was ministering to me before <laughs> even the context of the song but i decided just to be specific which was as a kid i m my dad was a hero and then he got crippled by anxiety and then addiction and it's now as a dad i see that and i i don't you know i, I don't want to give into the lie that somehow that that's going to be my fate and I see the same capacity in my kids to be super creative and imaginative, but then also to just see the worst in themselves and don't want that. And so I think the turning point for me became the fact of saying, well, if God was willing to relate to these people in the Old Testament in this specific way, I think he could do the same again. How would you describe that specific way that you've kind of discerned by working through this? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's been songwriting. That's my whole life. It's how, like, I find myself in holes that I got to sing my way out of. <laughs> and it, it, songwriting is, is not just my gift. It's, it's the way in which it's the, it's the place of intimacy, I guess, with God in a way. It's that scene from Chariots of Fire. It's like, he says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. It's like, when I write, when I sing, God smiles. And it doesn't even matter what I'm singing about. He just smiles because I sing. Do you ever look back at some of those exterior expressions and be like, ooh, wow. Yeah, no, <laughs> I do all the time. But, but then my kids, well, my daughter writes songs right now. She's nine years old and she's already writing songs. And she's probably going to be, a, she's already a better songwriter than I am. And it wouldn't matter what she sang. Hmm. She sings around the house all the time, and it just moves my heart. And I think there's an element of that in our giftedness and our creativity of who we are as people that just, you know, that's what I say. You know, Irenaeus says the glory of God is man fully alive. He doesn't say the glory of God is man fully alive and then presupposes it with a list of conditions. Talented. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exa exa successful. And smart. Yeah, like yeah. smart, good looking, you know, yeah. I mean. Yeah. So... So I think I got back in touch with that and with that and that song I think was a really good it was a mini turning point and like a mini confrontation and it it doesn't it doesn't get it's not a salve that just solves every um everything overnight it's work you know spiritual life is some some days it's just it's work you just you got to do it so um uh, you know is it uh Anne Lamott I think or yeah, I would say, do, just do the work. So I, I think confronting your ego and doing it armed with the grace and mercy of God is much better than just your own condemnation. You mentioned before that something else you were feeling during the pandemic is um, just the weight of the polarization and divisiveness in our in our society. And I could be wrong, uh, but it seemed like some of some of the songs on this album kind of reflected that. I'm thinking specifically of uh, "The Time Is Now" and, and maybe even "Common Ground." So I'm wondering, um, is that is that a a new um, theme in your music? Is this something you've addressed before? Or is this kind of something that you felt compelled to do in this moment? Um, I mean, I think it for me it probably goes back to moving to Tennessee. So I've been in Nashville 10 years ago. And I think 
right around 2013, I remember a, a friend of mine who's a African American musician, his fellow Catholic, he grew up in in Ferguson, Missouri. His name is Icondolo, and he was visiting in town. We were sitting on two rocking chairs, and I said, "Hey, I've had this." burning idea to write this song based on the we shall overcome speech by dr martin luther king um which then it it sort of it turned into the song uh, sons and daughters which was on saints and sinners and um i think that there was a start to that and then i think in echoes i wrote the song picket sign that album was originally supposed to be an album of music exploring the nature of protest what does it mean to stand up for you believe in uh, how do you do it in a world that's polarized? You know, Jesus found a way to stand for things that are true and not get pulled into certain uh, arguments, which are distractions, you know, from the real issues. I think for me, like everyone, obviously seeing the um, the reality of white supremacy growing in the country and white nationalism, um, like as a transplant, somebody who's like, I'm American, but I grew up in Canada. You know, my mother's American, I'm a US citizen, and I'm moving here and I lived in Arizona. And moving to the South, and you start reading about the history of the South, it really reframes your perspective. I think for me, the conversations around the treatment of black people in America, historically and currently, I just stopped listening to white people's perspectives and said, maybe I should listen to black people's perspective. Because we're talking about an issue of which, how a people, a large group of people have been historically marginalized. Maybe I should just listen to them first and foremost, particularly Christians, people who I go to church with, people that I write songs with, people that I've been on a stage and worshiping with. Maybe I should believe them. Maybe I should listen to them. I, I and uh, so the first thing for me was just, starting to ask the question and so going to friends and saying is this your experience and then emphatically without pausing saying yes it has been it's been that way my whole life and you have to hold space for that and i think once you start that conversation it there are plenty of moments where it's un it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable as a white person to um to sit and listen to your black friend talk about all the ways in which they've been treated by garbage even people in ministry. But you know what's worse? Being treated like garbage in ministry. Yeah. So it's like, it's a really small amount of, uh, of suffering. It's not even really suffering. It's long suffering is what it is. It's, it's, it's Christian love. That's what, that's what brotherhood and that's what love looks like. All of the bridges are burning. Can't keep a heart that is Times that are changing, we are the lessons we're learning. If everyone someone was I'm curious if you've gotten any pushback from maybe some longtime fans of yours. I I I don't I don't know. I uh, I generally tried to avoid reading the comment section. <laughs> I for 20 years I've I've tried to build bridges as an ecumenist and you know disguised as a songwriter. And what I'll tell you about ecumenism is if you want to build a bridge, you have to lay down and let people walk all over you. 
it doesn't matter what you do in this day and age, you're going to get criticism from somebody. And do you mean ecumenism in terms of just Catholic-Protestant relationships? I, at this point, I think it's I, I I think it's much the issues the divisions much deeper now. But I would say on a on a sociological level, yeah, like John seventeen, Jesus's prayer for unity. I used to think that that was about the church, and now I start to wonder if it's actually just about the whole human race. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, even within our within our own church, right? Polarization's been pretty 100%. intense. Um, yeah, like, and I was thinking about you know, our, our, this conversation today. And when I, before I knew you, when I first only knew you by your music and the first place I encountered it was, um, in, in the context of like Eucharistic adoration and praise and worship music, which is so funny because I feel like in so many liturgy wars that we have today, it's all about like Latin mass or English mass. And like, do we go backwards or forward? And I'm like, what I was raised on was like this ancient devotion with like brand new music. And it was to all just like mixed in right there. And it was totally normal and totally fine. Um, and th those were simpler times, I think, for my for my own spiritual life. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering what what you think we can do. I, I don't know, maybe in the in this next phase of the church's life uh, to start to you know build it up in our own house um, as we're working to do some some bridge building outside too. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think this is the thing about the Holy Father's Pontificate that people just they fail to recognize, right? So my friend Greg said this. I think this is one of the smartest insights of the past five years. I was dropping him off at the airport, and he said, "People think that the world is more divided than it's ever been. It's not. It's always been this divided. It's just that there was no outlet for the people who were marginalized to actually voice their opinion." And I was like, it hit me like square between the eyes that, you know what? You're completely right. We live in an age of democratized information. There are more opportunities for people to voice their opinions than ever before. And so we look around and we go, oh gosh, this place, the world is so divided. It's like, no, it's people have always had this diverse of opinions. The capacity to create consensus or create some form of environment to hold those is really, really hard. That's why we had ecumenical councils, historically speaking, which were brutal. They had fistfights, beards got pulled, and we sort of fell into an age of nicety and politeness and kind of veneered everything over. And I think what Pope Francis has been trying to do is to say, well, no, we should just air it all out. So I, you know, I love Latin. I've actually been working on a bunch of a music reincorporating Latin into worship music. And I'm sure some people will tell me I'm a heretic. And there will probably be people who are Christian who aren't Catholic who will say, you're using a dead language like, God have mercy on your soul. I think the, the goal of the sacraments is to make us saints. I think the goal of the, the church is to carry the same message that it's carried for 2,000 years. I think that there's a lot of bad ideas floating around. There's a lot of people wounded right now in society, struggling with their mental health, struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, and along comes some talking head on a screen that gives them a reason and says it's their fault. 
Meaning and, someone else's, uh, some other groups. Yeah, other it's other. some other groups, and yeah. it's just really dangerous. Why? And I think the other thing that's weird too, and this is just my personal opinion. Like as a lay person, I struggle with. I'm not an expert in theology. I'm not an expert in philosophy. I'm not an expert in sociology. I'm not an expert in political science. So why should I ever think that I should get on the internet because it's free and I can make a living <laughs> from it, and all of a sudden make a living espousing my opinion on all those things? Like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, and then we call it ministry too. It's one hundred percent grift. Grift as ministry or ministry as grift. <laughs> this is kind of unrelated, but something I've been very curious about listening to your music is um, how much you worry about like staying within the doctrinal lines of the church when you're doing this, you know, very creative thing. You know, the the bishops a couple of years put out some like standards about what can go in hymnals. Like it's better to use the word father instead of the creator and things like that. So I'm just curious, like how much do you feel the weight of staying within the lines when you're writing songs? No, I mean, I'm a, look, I'm a practicing Catholic in good standing in full communion with the church. If the bishops publish a document, I read it. And that's, I'm a Catholic. That's what it means. Um, I don't think that just because I'm making art, I should be above that. However, most music I write now, I don't write it in, intentionally to be liturgical music. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that some of it isn't appropriate because I think some of it lyrically does fall within the guidelines. And those kind of songs, more and more, I try to make it apparent. But at the same time, I don't necessarily want to put a, a brand on it. Music already is struggling with too many sort of categories as it is and genres within genres and genres that were created as marketing terms. I think sacred music is there. Sh there probably should be something specific about it that helps people understand how it, it's, it feels set apart. Right. And I think that even within evangelical Christianity, that's what worship music they've tried to do. So they did it, a lot of it with language. Historically, Catholicism did it with maintaining the style of, of chant, of Gregorian chant, plain chant. And, you know, but language becomes a big thing. That's ultimately what distinguishes um, congregational music is language. So I do think that each bishop is the chief liturgist of his diocese. He should be telling people, hey, everybody, here's my vision for worship. And this is where I, this is where I think the Holy Spirit is leading us. And this is where I want to go. And if you don't like it, um, you know, talk to him about it. Go try to make an appointment, um, have a conversation, present, you know, your reasons why. And at the end of the day, if he still makes his decision, that's his job. God will hold him accountable. And I, that's not even like a weird veiled threat. Like that's just <laughs> like, that's just what we believe. Like, right. So it's. And there's a great freedom in that too, right? It's like, the, I guess yeah. that's what I'm saying yeah. is that, and um, I got involved in my parish. I took about a 10 year break. And I got involved in my parish. I've been playing music on Sunday nights for um, going on seven years. And it's made me, you know, I'm back in there too. You know, and I'm back and looking at CCLI and looking at such and such a song written, written by so-and-so. And I go, I know that person doesn't believe in the Eucharist. But, but this song works really well <laughs> as an entrance hymn. I have plenty of people who love the extraordinary forum and tell me that they work out to my music or they use it in their homeschooling program. And I'm, I'm touched and honored that anything that I make would help someone in their, 
in their sanctification and in their walk with the Lord and with the church. And there are plenty of aspects about the human condition that I have not explored that I think as a writer, I'm always pushing myself saying, yeah, I want to, I got to explore that. All right. You have to come back when you do. Yeah. (laughs) I know we're running a long time, but I do want to just pick up on you being like a in charge of the music. Well, I'm not in charge. Uh, I'm I'm just a volunteer. Well, sorry, so yeah. sorry. You're playing. You're playing. Yeah, just a volunteer. Um, one, this is a quick one. Do you ever like use your own music? And do you feel like a college professor who assigns his own textbooks when that happens? Do you think people are like rolling their eyes, like, oh yeah, he phoned this one in. He's just got his own composition here. We're like located right off this one interstate. Um, and, and people will come up after and they're like, do you ever, do you ever, do people ever tell you, you sound a lot like Matt Marr? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I get it all the time. It's really weird. That's awesome. Oh my God. I love that. Um, more seriously, I, I, I like to, um, uh, what's the word Monday morning quarterback, a lot of things in liturgy. Um, this is a toxic trait of mine. Um, whether it's preaching or music or altar serving, I'm like, I always think about how could be done better. And I'm working on it. But maybe, like, what don't I get? Um, I, I feel like lots of people are critical of parish, parish musicians, right? And they're oftentimes, you know, e- either underpaid or not paid. Um, what what don't I get about that ministry that should give me a little bit more patience and sympathy? I mean, the biggest thing is people, it, 75% of that job, if you're doing it full-time, which I'm not doing it full-time. Uh, the music director is a dear man and... I'm sure if I talk to him, 75% of his job is dealing with people. So it's not about music. It's so much of pastoral ministry is not about the thing that you're doing. It's about people. You know, it's loving God, but it's really learning how to be relational and present with people and realize that you're building and fostering a community and it's not going to be perfect, but it's good to have a standard. It's good to have something to work toward. You know, the goal of any liturgical participation is we want to bring our best. God deserves our best. There does need to be, you know, a clear standard. But I think the thing that sometimes people forget is like when you're the, if you're the music minister at the parish and people show up and are like, I want to sing in the choir, um, you can have auditions and you can have tryouts and you could even like try to like weed them out by just doing really difficult music. It's a risky game. <laughs> well, but then it's like you're you're there with five loaves and two fish. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is what we have. Can God multiply this and do something with it? You know, so we're we're back at the we're back at the chosen. We're full circle. <laughs> Excellent. This is why you need to watch it, Zach. All right. I'm, I'll go home. I'll do it over Christmas break. I feel like my my Mom, my grandpa, everyone's been telling me. Ashley, yeah. everyone's been telling me to do it. So <laughs> it, it took my parents a year of bugging yeah, me yeah. for me to watch it, so yeah. I understand. All right, Matt, we do have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests. Yes. Which is, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? And last time, you canonized your grandmother. So you can't repeat that. She's already safe. No, I would do my wife. I, I'm going to canonize my wife. I loved your I, I loved your decisiveness. Song, the, well, no, well, also the song about her on the new album. There's oh. yes, it is. Yeah, wedding, wedding ring. <laughs> it's called wedding um, ring. Yeah, spouses of public figures. You can you can try to be aware of what it is you're signing up for, but you never really know. And um, and 
there's just so much. I mean, I'm I'm starting a tour. I'm out on the road. I go for two days and I come home for two days and then I'm gone for eight days and eight days away from our kids and our house and just life. It's just a lot that falls on her shoulders. And she's a development director. She's got like, you know, a career of her own. And um, and our kids are all at the ages now where they're just doing multiple things. They're like every day there's something after school. So it it requires just a a massive amount of receptivity towards grace, but it, it's certain level of like emotional stability that um that as the years go by, I, I it's like I just keep becoming more and more aware of of everything that she shoulders. So yeah, definitely my wife. All right. Well, Matt, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh if People haven't listened yet. They should. They, it's called the album is called "The Stories I Tell Myself." It's available wherever you stream music, um, and you're on tour right now, Matt. Right? People can come see see you live. I am. I'm on the Caleb Christmas Caleb Christmas tour uh, with uh, Crowder and uh, two other artists, Jordan Saint Cyr and Kenny Nicole, and um, it, it's a really great night of music. There's there's a couple of surprises, and um. It's only eight shows, so we're on the. They called it the West Coast, but it's really the Midwest Coast, <laughs> or just the the coast of mid. the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, the coast of the Midwest. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I'm, we I'm go still as far looking, as Phoenix. I'm still looking for the body of water. That's, yeah, that's to Ohio, where I grew up. Uh, that's not Lake Erie, but that coast. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh man, awesome. Well, good luck, and uh, thanks for taking the time. All right, thank you guys. We'll see you. For his life When I think of Joshua Walking around the walls Until they fell They went before me But these are the stories I think of no Looking for a sign After the rain When I think about Moses Speaking for the powerless In faith Deepen your faith and learn about the rich heritage of the Catholic Church. At Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology, you can earn your master's degree or certificate, or simply take a graduate course. Or celebrate the Christmas season by signing up for their Advent Reflection Series delivered every day by email. This year's theme is the Eucharist and Seton Hall's Campus, Daily Advent Meditations. Learn more at www.shu.edu slash Jesuitical. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Uh, a couple things, but first we want to shout out uh, some new Patreon supporters. Uh, thank you so much to Tarek Malouf and Adam Long. 
uh, for signing up to support the show there. Uh, we really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoy the benefits, including uh, uh, at the $10 level, you get a complimentary subscription to America Magazine. Um, we couldn't do this show without you, so thank you so much. And Tark and Adam are going to join the other 131 uh, Patreon supporters who are going to get a special benefit for this next part. Yes. So for our first episode of 2023, we want to do something a little different. We want to take your questions, listeners. Uh, Anything you want to ask Zach and I um, about about the church, about parish life, about ourselves, about making Jesuitical, uh, really anything. And uh, we don't want to be too self-involved. So (laughs) you can ask about us, but we really want to know what you care about and about what's going on in the church. Yeah, you know, this show is really trying to be a space where we can have good, hard, open conversations. They, they don't always have to be heavy, right? Like there's a reason we, we pour ourselves a stiff drink at the beginning of every show <laughs> so we can be as real as possible, right? In whatever way that leads. And so we hope you'll join us in this. A uh, couple practical details. Um, Patreon members, um, please, please, please message us or post on the Patreon uh, platform. Um, you're going to get priority for this. Um, so if you, you put a question there, we are you, you guys are going to the front of the line. Um, but we're also going to be taking questions uh, in our Jesuitical Facebook group. We're going to make a post. And then you can also email us at jesuitical at americamedia.org. Again, that's jesuitical at americamedia.org. But get the questions in, please, by December 19th, because uh, we're hoping to take some time off uh, during the Christmas and New Year holiday. And so we're going to we're going to record this ahead of Christmas and then put it out as our first episode of 2023. All right. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, And this week, we're going to go back to our good friend, Pope Francis, who has continued his catechesis on discernment. Um, I'm not sure if this is going to be the last one. It kind of feels like a wrap up because the theme of it is, okay, you've you've done all the good practices of making discernment. You've made a decision, so you think you're you're good, <laughs> but maybe not. Pope Francis thinks that you should, in the hours, days, weeks, months after that decision, take those signs and see if it really was a good discernment. And I thought he provided some really helpful signs. He gives three. And so first, you know, after you made a decision, uh, do you feel your heart to be more willing to live liberally in a relationship with the Lord? Is there an openness to God's love, a desire to be more close to him after you've made this decision? The second one is having a sense of place in one's life. You know, like I am where I belong and I am a part of a larger plan and I'm excited to be a part of it. And then finally, remaining free with regard to your decision. So like, yes, I feel good about my decision, but if circumstances change, if I feel I'm being pulled somewhere else by God, I am free to give this up. So I just thought those are really helpful. It's interesting because uh, it's sort of like I think I think this is counterintuitive advice to compare to what the modern world tells us, right? Um, I, I'm putting my father father in law on the spot here, but he he's always said, you know, you make a decision and you make it the right one, which I think is really good advice, particularly for things that like uh, y- you really shouldn't back out of, right? Like um, it, or things you have no control over. Um, but I think we all kind of have like there's two sides of it. We all kind of have a willingness to try to do that, to sort of will something into being the right thing and not express a vulnerability about maybe I made it, maybe I messed up. And the flip side of that is like a constant second guessing of oneself, right? That's like, oh, maybe I didn't do this right. Maybe I didn't do this right. And you're not, and it, it's so, you're in your own head and you're not really asking like anyone else or or God if if this is the right call. Mm. 
Yeah. One thing that struck me was after I finished reading it, I was like, all right, so when's the last time I made a good decision or like I made a big decision? Okay. And like, did I have any sort of process after it? And I had to go back to college. When I just <laughs> the last time you've made a big decision? <laughs> I was okay. like, the thing that came to mind was like, oh yeah, like the thing, like I would not be here today if I had decided to stop doing my business major and switch to religion and it has changed the course of my life. <laughs> um, and then, so I was like, oh yeah, that was definitely a good decision. But then I noted that when Pope Francis gives a example of making a decision in this talk, he was like, yeah, so if you decided this morning to spend a couple extra minutes in prayer, like throughout the day, how did that work out for you? <laughs> I was like, oh, a decision doesn't have to be. <laughs> life yeah. changing to be a decision like i i should be more intentional about like what is a decision and what is just life happening to me well and i think you can like get really scrupulous about that too yeah. right if you are like discerning whether or not to put three sprigs of mint <laughs> into your cocktail instead of two i don't like you know like that's not really where you should be and i don't mean mm -hmm. to be flipping about that because i know a lot of people struggle with this mm -hmm. um but I think we you're right. We have a tendency to like view our decision making process and those like huge terms, particularly particularly like, I don't know, younger stages in life when you're like, what do I want to do? Like, what is my place? Who do I want to be with? What do I want to be? Like, those are those big questions that kind of loom over us all the time. And, the, and so there's a tendency to like think that's that's the only thing worth praying about, worth seeking advice over. In in reality, like there should be some like habitual things that we do every day that we should be evaluating and examining and whether or not like it's it's really where God's calling us. Yeah. So uh listener maybe this week, think about the last decision you made, big or small. It could be as big as taking a job or as small as like your friend asks you to go out and you're like, uh, do I go out with him or not? And you know, just like ask the three questions that Pope Francis gives and and see where it leads you. I will say like one thing I wanted when I was reading this, and maybe this is another segment for the future is like okay what happens when you've decided you've made the wrong decision oh, yeah. <laughs> right there's like okay like i i, I you know i'm I, very free <laughs> yeah i don't really so i don't feel any of these things yeah. that pope francis is talking about <laughs> now what like what do i need to ask god for that but all right Ho hopefully pope francis will get to that next. yeah i hope that's the next <laughs> next uh, audience all right i will get us out of here Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christopher Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless for Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.